Well, welcome and good morning, Trinity Bible Church, as well as guests and family that are, are visiting. Uh, we're continuing in our time in the Gospel according to Matthew. Uh, we are in chapter 21 and we'll be covering verses 12 through 17 today. Uh, before we begin, just to let you know if, if you are visiting, I will read through the entirety of the verse and then get, offer you a time of silent prayer. Uh, the purpose of that silent prayer is to um, exercise your ability as a believer to, to pray to God through the power of the Holy Spirit, which indwells you and, and seals you, uh, to recognize, perhaps in your own life, unrepentant sin in need of confessing, uh, offering up your praises to God, as well as, as asking God, the Holy Spirit, to illuminate or open your mind to the truth of the Word, which is living and true and active. And you as a believer are on a road of sanctification, being molded inwardly more into the image of Christ, and in need of hearing not just your moment of salvation, but daily needing to hear and be reminded of the good news of Jesus Christ so that you might be formed more and more into his image. So uh, during this time of silent prayer, uh, following that, I'll pray for us corporately and we'll enter into the time of the word. Reading now from Matthew 21, 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Please take this time to pray.
Heavenly Father, as, as the church gathers here on the Lord's Day, we come to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. We come offering worship through the power of the Spirit. We do so through our voices joined together in praise, through both corporate and individual prayer, the fellowship of the saints, the ministry of the Word, and communion with the Lord's Supper. Lord, grant us mercy this day as we sinners come to worship a holy God. We have done so from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, a week. We have done so while being inhabitants of a fallen world. Where everywhere we look, everything we hear almost, we see the mark of sin and death. Rebellion against God. Seemingly hopeless. And yet we know the elect of God. That we live by the greatest hope. God, so remind us this morning. In our gathered public worship. In our shared union with Christ. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Challenge us. By the gospel of Jesus Christ, show us the places in our life that need to be given over fully to him. Refresh our hearts and our minds through the gospel. Strengthen us through the power of the word. Lord, that we might be shaped more and more into the image of Christ, that we might represent him more In this fallen world, as we look forward not to any hope in any earthly kingdom, but all of our hope are bound in the truth and the knowledge that we are inhabitants of Christ's kingdom. And one day he will return to claim us as his own. And Lord, may we be joyful in the expectation of that blessed hope. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. We're coming off of what is is called the triumphal entry. We talked last week of how it might be more appropriate to call it a lamentful entry. As Jesus is confronted with the unbelief and the faithlessness that, that inhabits Jerusalem. He's met with crowds that precede him and are around him and come behind him. Uh, They're shouting Hosanna in the highest. They're laying uh, leaves on the ground. He's being treated as the returning king. And as they open the doors and he comes in, there's much tumult or much noise being made. A celebration begins and people ask who who this is. And and they say, this is the prophet, Jesus. Talked about last week how that, the spectacular nature of missing the mark even what would have been a great, in their eyes, honor to this one Jesus that they would call him a prophet, missing out 
And so this king, which we will see as we continue, and all of you know, for those of you who know the story, this is a king who will be rejected by his people. This is a king who will be denied his sovereign rights by his people. And so this rejected king now enters his capital, Jerusalem, where Temple Mount is found. And one of the interesting things that, that is, as this plays out, I mentioned last week how in the ancient Near East, a, a king or a, or, or a triumphant military leader would enter the, the capital with much, much praise and much joy and much fanfare. And one of the first things they would do is they would go to wherever the religious height of that city was, whatever the temple might be. The Romans would offer sacrifices. A returning general would offer sacrifices to any number of pagan deities. The same would go through most. And so the reality was the king, one of the first things he would do would be go to the place of worship. Now there's much irony in this. Now the history of temple was to signify God's presence, whether it was in tabernacle or the building of the temple uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the priesthood was all to be a show to the people of Israel that God was with them. His presence dwelt with him. Uh, his holiness was, was frightening in, in such a manner that both tabernacle and temple are built in a way that only certain individuals could come into the Holy of Holies. And all of it, though, was it was supposed to present to the people, this is the city where the one true God dwells. In this particular place, temple is where his people come to worship him on the highest holy days. So much so, but the diaspora of the Jewish people that had happened centuries earlier, all throughout the Roman Empire, would come and migrate to Jerusalem on these days. And it happens to be such a time. It happens to be... Passover. And so there are Jews or, or, or even proselytes, those who have, uh, were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism as it was, are now in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they're at the place where they're like, this is where God meets his people. This is where God meets his people and he's prescribed all these things with which we, which we worship and show our praise for him and in walks God. And he does so surrounded by crowds who call him prophet. Surrounded by crowds who are there to see the show. And within the crowds are his adversaries who are supposed to be the people teaching all of Israel how to worship God. And the teachers of Israel want to kill God. That's what I mean by this whole scene that we've just read is filled with irony and sadness and lament. And so the rejected king goes to temple and the people are following him. It's crowded. And they're awaiting. What's he going to do? Is he going to offer a sacrifice? Is he going to begin teaching? Maybe he's going to remember he has to offer certain sacrifices and he's going to buy some pigeons 
Or he's going to remember that certain amount of his money has to go to temple offering. He's going to go to the money changers right there. And of course, this was all things that were provisions in the law, except they were in the marketplace where you were supposed to buy these things. Because as it was, offerings had to be made. People who were coming on a six-month journey weren't going to take their sacrifice animals with them the entire way. So there's provisions in Leviticus to where you could purchase a turtle dove or whatever it may be. But it was in the marketplace. Yet the, the money lenders and the changers have actually set up in the court of the Gentiles within the temple themselves. And what it meant was they saw such a low view of the proselytes or Gentile believers that they set up a place of commerce within the temple, which was supposed to be a place of worship. So as these crowds are watching Jesus, they're excited. Here he comes. He's about to, maybe he's going to do something. We can all celebrate. And then we know what happens next. But you can't lose sight of the fact And the challenge for us today is living a religious life. A life of pretending at being Christian. A life of going through the motions. I come to church on Sunday. I watch my language when I'm there. I try not to think about other things, even though I got this going on, that going on, this going on. I'm going to smile. I'm going to make sure I go through all the motions, but then as soon as I'm out of here, I can finally stop pretending. See, what Jesus is dealing with here isn't just bad public worship. It's false God himself is walking into the temple that he gave designs how to build and the purpose of its worship. And as God-man is walking as the incarnate son of God, the second person of the Trinity, when he comes in, he doesn't celebrate their wonderful worship. He throws over the tables. He knocks over the chairs. And he calls judgment on the poverty of their spiritual life. And if there's a challenge for the church in this account, I understand there's certain analogies you can't use. The temple in the New Testament church is the believer, your body. That is clear from the New Testament. The temple is not a physical building. You are the temple if you are in Christ. All people from all time are the temple who are in Christ. This is not a temple. This is a barn. And that's fine. It supplies a roof and lights so where we can come and worship publicly. But what is a good analogy to this is people's heart of worship. The Jews were proud of temple. It was destroyed in the 5th century BC. It was rebuilt in the 4th or the 3rd. And then it was 
beautified by Herod the Great in the final century of B.C. To such a manner it was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. The gold inlays, the massive size, the statues, the beauty inherent in the physical building. And we know in the Gospel of John, Jesus weeps as he enters it. This physical marvel of temple in 40 years from this time will not exist anymore. And yet that seemed to be the heart of worship in Israel at the time was rote, mechanical tradition. And so when Jesus enters in, He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, in verse 12, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The den of robbers phrase is is interesting. The word in the Greek for robbers, it's infused with the idea of violence. Now, what that means is we don't quite know, but what it probably alludes to is the fact that the where it's located, as well as certain types of what people have believed might have been some type of extortion. You're coming in, you have to pay for this to get in and do that kind of thing. Temple had become or worship had become something that was a business. And the steps or the aspects of worship for a high time of of all of the visitors coming to Passover during this time was, was, had become for many a way to make money. And the religious authorities were a part of it. When Jesus overturns the tables and he does these things, the people that meet him in criticism are the religious authorities. Now I stop for a moment for the challenge. Can tradition slowly... For the church becomes something that replaces true worship. Can you begin to go through the steps of the Sunday morning to where this is what I do, and throughout the week, you are not in the Word. Throughout the week, you are not in prayer. Throughout the week, you have no fellowship with the saints. Throughout the week, and you come on Sunday... And as a bodily reflex, like when your hammer gets, when your knee gets hit with the little thing and you kick the doctor, just like that, as a reflex, you know how to go through the motions of Sunday morning to every word you say, to what you say to people, to how you present yourself. A heartless worship. It's easy for us, right? If we go, let's look at Christianity today And look how tradition can drive the heart from worship, right? And for anyone whose history I'm about to demolish, I, in advance, do not apologize. And I just wanted to say that. So (laughs) it's easier for us to look at things like Roman Catholicism. And say, look at all the tradition. Look at the way they've strayed from the the, the truth of the gospel. It's very easy. 
when you offer prayers up for intercession for saints that are deceased who are actually worshiping Christ, and you say you need to do that in order that they intercede for you on, on, on your behalf, and you're like, hold on, there seems to be several texts that would say we already have that in Christ. No, 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 you need all the apostles, Mary, and people throughout history that, you know, you got to wear the necklace, you got to do the things, you have the, you have the seven sacraments. We can easily go, as Luther did, like this is found nowhere in Scripture. How is it that the church came to this, this rote following, and it led to the abandonment of the truth, of the beauty, of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the absolute need of everything to be given to Christ and nothing held back and the joy that was supposed to come from the recognition of all I need is Christ. Well, you could go and kind of go a little closer to home. Say the Protestant side of things. Like, let's look at the Lutherans. You have to admire the audacity that they literally named themselves after a man. And they're like, Luther got it all right. Hmm. What about the Methodists or the Anglicans? What about the Presbyterians? The rest, there's a mishmash of other things. But the reality is we can look at all these other groups and go, look how they've strayed. Look at all the denominations now where 75% of the larger denominations have abandoned almost all the essentials of the Christian faith in order to accommodate themselves to the culture that they live in. So they believe that somehow a fallen world might appreciate them more if they look more like that fallen world rather than remembering that the believer and the unbeliever live in a place of antithesis, meaning that the only thing the unbeliever is going to come to a recognition of their sinful life for is not how nice you are. It's a absolute crushing move and blow of the Holy Spirit on them, convicting them through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But now let's look at us. What about the independent, evangelical, pseudo-reformed, baptistic, Calvinistic world? Yeah, I can add more. <laughs> we're weird. We're not bad weird, but we're, we got a lot. And you have to wonder, the heart of, of independent, I want you to think about that. Where do you... <laughs> that, um, the music, if, the, if we can do the Lord's Supper now, that's, uh, that's so good. Yeah, we didn't even get to that scripture yet. That's so good. Nothing I say now is going to be as good as that. Even a non-careful student of the New Testament should have a hard time looking for the word independent church. What do we mean by that? 
that we're autonomous and so no other church can tell us what to do? Well, sure. But where do we see that at work in the New Testament? I'll give you the answer. You don't. As a matter of fact, you see the opposite. You do see that there is apparently no other church that can impose its authority on another church. Even the apostles write to churches that they're not a part of in a way to address the leaders in hope that they're going to do what the apostles are telling them to do. So certainly that aspect is true. Yet that doesn't seem to be how we operate. The independent evangelical Christian world seems to operate with the understanding that we do whatever we want, whenever we want, and no one can say anything to us. And at the same time, when there is some type of need we might have, where and who do we turn to? The church in Corinth certainly had Paul, at least in his first letter, a who's who of coming from all over the Christian world at the time to come help that church that was struggling. People are coming from Ephesus. They're coming from Crete. They're coming from Macedonia, and they're all going to this church, and they don't belong to that church, and yet there's no objection. It's like, you need help, and we're sending help. And what happens in the independent church world and evangelicalism is you really end up just sitting by yourself looking down on all the fools that are doing Christianity a little bit less than you. Those poor fools. How do they not know? Why do you think there's so many church splits? I say that as an elder at a church that was birthed out of a church split. Where was the help? Was there another church that could have come in and help? I don't say this from our, just our experience. I say this from, this happens all the time. So then you stop and you look at these other churches that we look down on. You know what? The Presbyterians may be goofy about something, but a presbytery sounds like a good idea. Five or six churches in an area who agree to take care of each other. Neither of them have authority over each other. I don't pretty much like, I don't so much like the General Assembly idea, but the, the idea of four or five churches. All this is to make a point. Is that tradition long tradition had driven this age of Judaism to a cold faith where the people, the common people were being told how to live in a certain way and how to act and how to speak and yet there was no worship, there was no reverence in the heart of the people. And that can happen to the church, and you see it all the time. And so my challenge is to you now as individuals. Is your heart turned towards God in such a manner that worship is a daily activity 
that when you actually come on the Lord's Day to share in worship with one another, it's an overflow of that activity already because we're supposed to be those who don't need to go to temple because we are the temple. You don't need to wait to offer sacrifices yearly because sacrifice has been given. You're not waiting for any other gifts. You have the Holy Spirit, which is a seal and a sign of your ultimate deliverance from all the brokenness in you and in the world around you. That should lead you, if you know that, if you believe that, that should lead you and that should form your heart in such a manner that you can't help but say, thank you, God. And you can't help but tell the downcast individual in the church who's struggling right now to remind them, hey, remember these truths about who you are in Christ. Whatever's bringing you down, whatever's breaking you, whatever it is, remember who Christ is. He's your savior. He's your redeemer. He's your king. He's your high priest. He's all these things. He's all sufficient in all of your needs. And yes, you live in a broken world surrounded by broken people and you too are broken. But Christ calls you to be looking to him. And he is coming to complete his work. But when Jesus finds this parody of worship, he reacts in his place as king of Israel. He acts in his authority as the ultimate high priest. And he calls judgment on this false worship. They'll wonder at his authority. They've been wondering at that for a while. And he tells them what should have been a house of prayer, which house of prayer is really a it's, a, it's a, it's a phrase that should kind of take all the elements of worship. It's a place of, it should be a place of worship, but you make it a place of robbers or highwaymen, if you will. And when we get into 14, this, there's some interesting aspects as to tied to my challenge about both both private and public worship and, 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 and that how it deals with the church and tradition. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them who were not allowed in the temple. So the crowds follow him in. The blind and the lame were not allowed. They had to be outside. It's in Leviticus. So these crowds follow him in. He throws over what they thought was a proper part of temple worship and commerce was to have these tables where they could buy the pigeons, where they could give their offerings. Jesus throws that stuff over, turns to the blind, the lame, says, come here. And so they come in and he heals them in front of these crowds. The king, the high priest, the only one who has authority to say, this is how you will worship. And he even says he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw, listen to the turn of phrase, the wonderful things that he did. And then they saw that the children were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you see? 
God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, creator, redeemer, coming and telling his followers he's coming to die for the sins of his people and that he'll be mocked and he'll be spit on. He'll be in every conceivable aspect of shame will be heaped on him. And when he comes in and disrupts and shows the irreverence of their worship, shows the falseness of their worship, and then shows them one final time his healing. The lame are coming, meaning within this massive crowd that have gathered to Passover now, rather than certain houses or certain places or or healing with, with smaller groups, here now in front of this audience, causing this great scene, he begins to see the lame and the sick and the disease-ridden, and Jesus heals them. The people are all seeing it. Something continues that has never been done before, and Jesus is doing it. And the reaction of those who teach, they teach the people what it means to worship God, are indignant? And look at the way that Matthew writes it. They'd witnessed the wonderful things that he did. Matthew is trying to fill the reader with the idea, the picture of what happened for the reader that wasn't there. And the awe and the reality of of, of Another thing that's never happened before. And not only is he doing these wonderful things, the children are still singing to him. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. We've already talked about this. Matthew in particular has used children a couple other times in the previous few chapters. One was as, as a picture of innocence, but also a picture of one that needed to be taken care of, and then later turns into a picture of a Christian disciple. And then later, when the children want to come to him, and the disciples, his own disciples, rebuke them, Jesus says, let them come, and he holds them, puts his hands on them. And now again, while all this is happening, it's not mentioned that everyone stopped, but Matthew only mentions that the children are still praising Jesus. And the religious leaders who taught, who taught the Jews how to revere and worship God, watch and see and are angry about it. If there's anything that we can take from this, It isn't waiting to see if the lame and the sick are healed in front of your eyes and whether or not your reaction will be anger or joy. Rather, the reality is is a contention with your own heart towards God. This hardness of heart of the adversaries of Christ was interested only only in one thing, Their interest had to do with self-interest, self-preservation, the way that they had life, the way that they had whatever it may have looked like in their 
their propensity to be before the people at all times and people looking up to them. And Jesus is reaching down to the sinners. And as they cry out, they said, do you hear what they're saying? This is the best part. And Jesus said to them, yes, I hear. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. Jesus shames the people around him. All those who were looking for spectacle, spectacle, all of those who were watching something to happen, all of those who were his enemies in the crowd, all of them who were there for any other reason than to praise him as the long-awaited king. Who are we waiting for? We are waiting for the one who is going to be in the line of David and the seed of Abraham. How will we know to look? Well, one will proceed him who will be like Elijah. Okay. And then what? He'll work out every prophecy to point to the fact that he is the long-awaited one, the one who will crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the woman, the tribe of Judah, the great king and priest and redeemer. And when he arrives, they knew him not. And yet, the children praise him. I haven't announced where I was turning to because I'm terrified from last week. For those of you that were here. I read this verse so many times this week. And I I, I triple checked even this morning that the bookmark was in the right place. My, My blanket is still up here, but I didn't want to be rash. But I want you to come face to face with what I feel is probably one of the greatest renderings of what I'm trying to say. Is that we can believe that we are Christian. We can believe that we're doing great. We can believe that, hey, I'm better than the other person. All of those ideals on what it is to be Christian, to be a worshiper of God, do not come from Scripture. If you're trying to pat yourself on the back because you're better than so-and-so, you're in a bad place. If you go through all the motions on Sunday morning and say all the right things until you leave, you're in a bad place. If you go throughout the week and you have not looked at the Word and you have not prayed and you have not considered... God's great mercy on you daily. You are in a bad place. And so I'm going to turn to Jeremiah and I want to read a group of section where Jeremiah addresses something 
similar to this. The right one. Starting in 7, verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? You see it? It's not without incident that Jesus alludes and quotes this passage. This passage is about liars lying to themselves. Of who they are. Look at that list. And now can you think back to the teaching on Jesus and Matthew. On what he teaches about adultery as an example. What he teaches about money. What he teaches about murder. All of these things that he's been doing. Is showing the people what true worship is. I want to read this part again. I want you to contend in your own mind and heart with where you are. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal? And listen, go after other gods you have not known. That includes gods of comfort. Jeremiah will later use the imagery of a priest offering worship and a sacrifice and then go home and take off his vestments and get into his prayer closet and bow down to an idol. Are you concerned about the times ahead of us? Are you concerned about the political landscape of the country? Not only should that be such a far secondary thought in your mind to who you are before God. How much time do you spend worrying and preparing and all of these things that have to do with where you are here and now? And how little time are you contending with your own heart? That heart which gladly makes idols over and over and over and over again. All it takes is a little slack in discipline and prayer and the word and meeting with the saints. Before you know it, you're making offerings to Baal. 
Jesus is calling this audience to true worship. And then because he is Jesus, goes to the cross, takes your punishment and mine and the curse of God on all of those who he would call by his name, who the Father gave to him. And he dies for them. And his blood, his blood poured out for them. And now they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They are clothed in his righteousness. You have every conceivable tool you need to pursue Christ in your life. And you will not be perfect. But make a firm reckoning with your heart and your mind. Take a stand as you want to on other issues that are so important to you. And understand this is the centrality of who you are as a Christian man or woman is to follow Christ. And everything else that hinders you from that in this life needs to be jettisoned. Heavenly Father, may we be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he entered into the world with the purpose, the purpose of humiliation, with the purpose of of honor that naturally and glory that should be his was denied him. Lived a sinless life, marched to a criminal's death. The one true sinless Passover lamb that forever attained salvation for his people. He then resurrected was seen amongst many, ascended back to the right hand of the Father. The Father and the Son sent God, the Holy Spirit, to indwell His people, to seal them as His own, to regenerate their dead hearts and give them new life in Christ. And He calls us to follow Him. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray whatever obstacles are before us, that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the fellowship of the saints, we would persevere to the end, showing his glory to the nations around us in our emulation of him. May you be glorified as we continue in our time of worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.